Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murens. On today's episode, we are joined by Erica Olmsted, Molly Joek, and Connie Campbell, who all work at Edelman & Co., a Vancouver immigration law firm. All were counsel for the appellant in the Supreme Court of Canada decision in Mason v. Canada, Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, an October 2023 Supreme Court of Canada decision. To summarize the case, I will read, or paraphrase, the case in brief from the Supreme Court of Canada website. Quote, Earl Mason and Saifaslam Dilo are foreign nationals in Canada. In 2012, Mr. Mason was charged with attempted murder and discharging a firearm following an argument with a man in a bar. The charges were eventually dropped. In Mr. Dilo's case, he was alleged to have engaged in acts of violence against intimate partners, some of the criminal charges from these incident, incidents were dropped, and he pled guilty to three minor charges that do not give rise to criminal inadmissibility in Canada. Following these incidents, officials at the Canada Border Services Agency prepared reports alleging that most Mr. Mason and Mr. Dielo were inadmissible to Canada pursuant to subsection 34 sub 1 sub e of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. This section states that a permanent resident or a foreign national is inadmissible to Canada on security grounds for engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives of safeties, the lives or safety of persons in Canada. Sorry. The reports led to inadmissibility hearings before the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada, an administrative tribunal responsible for deciding immigration and refugee matters. In Mr. Mason's case, the decision was also appealed to the Appeal Division at the Immigration and Refugee Board. The Immigration and Refugee Board ultimately found that both were inadmissible to Canada. In each of their cases, the tribunal interpreted acts of violence under Section 34 sub 1 sub e in a broad sense, without requiring there to be a link to national security or the security of Canada. 
This meant that the violent conduct of both men, or any permanent resident or foreign national in Canada, despite posing no threat to national security, could justify them being inadmissible to Canada under Section 34.1e. Mr. Mason and Mr. Dielo sought judicial review of the decision. The federal court granted their decision, granted their uh, judicial review. However, the federal court of appeal found that the tribunal was reasonable in its interpretation. Ultimately, the Supreme Court of Canada allowed their appeals, and the Supreme Court of Canada's main finding was that a person can only be found inadmissible to the country under Section 341E of Canada's Immigration and Refugee Protection Act if they engage in violent conduct linked to national security or the security of Canada. Writing for the majority, Justice Jamal said that there was a single reasonable interpretation of this section, and it required that there be a nexus to national security. Now, there's a lot to unpack in what I just read, and I know that it's very dense. However, I hope that providing this summary at the outset will make the podcast uh, more accessible to people who aren't familiar with the decision and also set the stage for what we discuss. I happen to think, as I discuss in the podcast episode, that this is probably the most significant immigration decision in almost a decade, um, and had the decision gone the other way, the implications would have been severe for all Canadian permanent residents, as well as foreign nationals in Canada, uh, for reasons that I explain in the podcast. This was, I think, a fascinating episode, and... Um, a very good one towards the end of the year. I hope you enjoy. As I was saying before we we got started, um, one thing that I have noticed is that Maybe this, maybe people always feel this way, but um, it's a hard moment, I think, in the immigration field. I think everyone feels a tiny bit beaten down. Um, but what I have noticed is that um, that immigration lawyers are kind of they're they're becoming quite specialized in the sense that everyone is figuring out what type of case they want to work on and at least in the in the west coast anyways and um the way that i have generally worked with all of you is that like i'll see a case and i'm like this is an erica case this is a connie case this is something that you know the people over at edelman would really you know run with this is more my kind of a case this is a steve kind of a case and you know i think that we all work in a fairly organic way where it's like everyone has their specialization and i see all of you as the kind of big picture public interest litigators and i mean obviously the number of times that um that you um especially you erica have like taken cases up to the supreme court of canada it seems that like you're really growing a practice that is about big picture immigration public interest litigation and i wanted to hear from you about you know was this accidental is it just the cases are coming to you or have you really deliberately tried to grow this practice area over the years 
probably a, a combination of um, keeping an eye out for the big picture legal issues combined with the cases that land on our desks because of the legal aid practice that we have. And I do think that's something that makes us different with the strategic litigation that we do as compared to a lot of what I see elsewhere, which I see elsewhere often um, lawyers will see an issue that they care about and they'll build a case around it, whereas that's not what we've ever done. And to me, it makes it easier for my job as a lawyer when uh, it's very client driven and just my interest and passion in the case when it's built around kind of an injustice that I see happening directly to a client of mine. So it, it, it has, yeah, it's really been a combination of the two where what I see happen and, and this happens with other people at our firm as well is there'll be a case that kind of, it just doesn't sit right with you. It, it, there's something that screams out as an injustice and you can't really like articulate why, but you know, something wrong is happening by deporting this person. And that's typically what these cases have all been about is at the end of the day, deportation. And so then um, we start doing a detailed dive into the law and into how we can kind of translate the injustice that's happening in a way that the judge will care about. And often what it feels like is you have to get to the Supreme Court in a number of these cases to have that big picture view of a bench of judges that will care about what you're saying. Yeah. Um, because other, you know, whether it's the tribunal member or federal court judges, they don't seem to think they have the ability to maybe change the law or make the decision that you want to be made. So that's happened kind of with B10, with uh, the human smuggling provision, with TRAN, with the interpretation of conditional sentence orders as not being terms of imprisonment, uh, with, with Mason now, as well as with Wong about the withdrawal of guilty pleas. So those were all cases where the arguments, it felt like we lost I think in every single one of those at the appellate level. Mm -hmm. And it was really reassuring to finally get to the Supreme Court level where you have the judges that are engaged with all of the aspects of the interpretation of a provision. And they're not kind of distracted or sidelined by what they say see is a precedent that they're bound by that isn't necessarily principled or rationalized. Because that's what I often find happen happens at the appellate level is they'll 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 look at the issue in a piecemeal way um, and they'll miss a whole bunch of the arguments. And it's really frustrating when that happens. And so then you kind of become driven by the sense of the injustice of the decision you got that didn't consider the arguments that you made and you just keep going up until you can't go up anymore. That's mm -hmm. kind of been the strategy for me. I'm not sure, Molly, if you have kind of things to add about the cases you've worked on. Um, no, I, I think I feel the same way as you and maybe what I would add, you know, Deanna, you sort of touched on what you see as going on regionally. And I think the thing we've realized or the thing I've realized is that the kinds of cases that Erica has worked on and I've started to work on and Connie works on, those are cases, they tend to be discrete legal issues that we can run as a firm. It's manageable. We can we can spread the work between two or three people. I don't I don't think we have the capacity in Vancouver to be launching the kind of litigation that gets launched in Toronto. So the safe third country agreement, things like that. 
those are cases that took teams of, you know, at times 10 or 11 lawyers working over this the, the course of years. And I think the RLO plays a big role in that. Um, I hope in the future that the Immigration and Refugee Legal Clinic in Vancouver will start to be able to see some of that that kind of work. But, you know, the way I've always seen it is the lawyers out in Ontario can lead those sort of really, really big pieces of strategic litigation. And our office is really well placed to take on these smaller, discrete issues um, that require, you know, just that require two or three lawyers and very focused litigation over the long term. And I think it's great that that our office is able to lead some of those cases. Mm -hmm. What about you, Connie? Is there anything, uh, I'm not sure if Connie is currently connected, uh, but um, I just wonder if there was anything uh, that you wanted to add. I think maybe Connie stepped away. Um, I wonder, like, is there a specific organizing principle around the types of cases that, that, that get under your skin? They tend to be inadmissibility or refugee cases, and it's particularly because of the significant consequence to these individuals and the politicized nature of some of the decisions that are made without really, I I think there's a bit of a dichotomy actually between the humanitarian um, spirit of Canada's immigration and refugee system and then some of the the decisions that seem to get made on the basis of national security and public safety. Um, And when, when a decision is being made, it it can sometimes be overly uh, emphasizing of the, the, um, the security and public safety nature to the complete exclusion of the impact on individuals, the separation on family members, the lack of actual national security or public safety issues in a given case and just the extreme consequences. So I find it's really refugee and admissibility cases that have this kind of um, imbalance in the way decisions will be made um, in not a holistic way. And I think part of that has happened because of the exclusion of charter principles from these areas where typically section seven would require that when these decisions are made, they be made in a tailored way, a way that's not overbroad. Whereas when B10 was found to be taken for the the principle that you you don't look at the charter principles in this analysis, it's meant that there's become a really big disconnect between these things. And so those are the ones that then really get under our skin because it feels like they're being made in a way that's not principled and isn't in the way that parliament or or parliamentarians enacting this legislation really intended it. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I distracted you while you were talking because I pulled up um, the version of the, um, this is just an example, but as I was reading the Mason decision, I started, like, I was looking at section 25, which is our agency power, you know, that exists in the, in the IRPA, where it says, you know, we have the power to overlook any inadmissibility on the humanitarian and compassionate grounds. And I remember when I first started practicing, it was like, a simple provision, you know, we can overlook anything on any basis, taking into consideration the best interests of the child or any humanitarian and compassionate factors. And that section just grew and grew and grew. And then there's carve outs. Now you can't consider this in the case of certain types of criminality. And 
certain types of, um, you know, insecurity concerns, and they're just adding exception after exception. So it's carved out to the point that now it's like a wiffle ball. Um, and the number of circumstances, the number of circumstances in which humanitarian and compassionate factors can be comply, applied are so um, incomplete. And the same thing happened with appeal rights. The number of circumstances in which you have a full equitable appeal carved away, carved away, carved away, another whistle ball, you know? And so um, the same thing with the pre-removal risk assessment, carved away, carved away, carved away. And it does seem to me that like what you're talking about in terms of admissibilities and, um, and refugee claims, all of these sorts of things, I feel like um, so many of them engage this principle of the like attrition of equitable jurisprudence. Like, I don't know when the decision was made to not consider the cases on the full merits and uh, how that imbalance has really grown. Um, that was part of why I was asking the question. I was a bit loaded because I, I, I had in my own mind a sense of, uh, of what what always compels me about the cases that that you folks are taking up to the to the highest court well and, and that's exactly right and i think in our, our cases as well it's been this idea that the ministerial relief provision at the end is the saving provision but then over the last 15 years or so we've seen oh the decisions aren't actually being made on those applications you're only getting a handful a year and then you had agrera that interpreted the the discretion in that provision more narrowly and um so yeah the, that combined with the hnc rolling back the iad right rolling back uh means that any interpretation given to these provisions based on the discretion that's built into the act otherwise it becomes imbalanced in a way that the courts need to relook at when you're seeking to give proper effect i think to the objectives in ERPA, which is to balance the humanitarian interests and national security mm -hmm. and that's combined with this real broadening and i think this this also ties in your two questions Deanna, a broadening of the approach to the admissibility provisions that really often is generated out of out of the West. Like a lot of these cases seem to be interpretations that are that are piloted by the minister in the Western region. And that's that's what Mason was. We've seen expansive interpretations of Section 37. Um, Section 35, you know, was tightened up with Ezecola, but I think there's been a walking back of Section 35 as well. Uh, some tightening, but but in any case, I think that the minister is taking really creative interpretations to to encapsulate as many people as possible with these, these admissibility provisions while simultaneously tightening up the quote unquote relief valves. And it's it's deeply problematic, but makes for some very interesting litigation. So like somebody who would have previously been serious criminality is now getting faced with an organized criminality allegation or uh, a security um, allegation. These sorts of things are the, the, there's an enlarging of the use of those more serious allegations in which they would not have a right of appeal, in which they would not have the ability to make a prawl, they would not have um, the ability to then make a humanitarian and compassionate application. And, um, you know, I think that what we've talked about sometimes on the show is that they might have been here since childhood, they might have. And so it's sort of, to me, always a question of like, where did these problems get created? 
<laughs> and um, Canada's sort of like lack of ownership for some of these issues and, uh, you know, like this, um, it kind of reminds me, Steve, of the conversation that we had a little bit during our last podcast about, you know, Canada's assertion of the rights of detention and deportation, like that these ideas kind of came about rather spontaneously and they didn't always exist. But now um, I think that these notions of like, you're in and then you're out, that now the problems are considered to be problems of a foreign jurisdiction, even if the issue was created uh, in a domestic sense, like the um, the abuse that, cre- like, again, I don't want to get into causation, but again, there's sort of this idea of like, once problems occur, then you're out. Um, that I think there's not like a, um, a lot of analysis or causative um, interpretation or analysis that's going on. So, um, so maybe we should look at the case um, specifically and just um, have a very high level um explanation of what what the basic facts are and how did the case end up getting to the Supreme Court of Canada in the first place I don't know which one of you wants to to give us like a a high level explanation I'm happy to to do it this one happened rather organically there had been uh, one decision made uh, by member King of the immigration division a couple years earlier where CBSA had tried to run this same argument on the interpretation of this um, engaging in acts of violence in admissibility security provision. And they had tried to say uh, that, you know, it, it, it has to capture in that case, it was an allegation of, domestic violence. And their member King had said, uh, no, this is a national security provision, so it's going to be interpreted narrowly. And that decision was never appealed. And then in this case, uh, Mr. Mason had been charged with shooting uh, at a couple of people in, in a legion after he had been smashed on the head with a beer bottle. And um, there was an investigation and then eventually uh, charges were laid and then they were withdrawn. And uh, the the Supreme Court has said that they were withdrawn based on delay, but actually there's there's not complete information about why this occurred. And that's that's the best guess um, based on the information that's given. But the the those decisions of Crown, to my understanding, are are usually confidential. So we don't actually know. And um, so I think CBSA had initially suspended Mr. Mason's refugee claim based on an allegation that he would be inadmissible if he's found, uh, if he's convicted and and, uh, inadmissible for serious criminality. And so when the charges were stayed, he he had a spousal sponsorship pending and um, they wanted to bring this new inadmissibility allegation forward when they realized that he wouldn't be inadmissible under Section 30. Six. So they brought the arguments again, and Peter Edelman was counsel at the time, so he made arguments just based on the interpretation of the provision, because it's never been used in this way. They decided to take the unique approach to have the legal issue decided outside of any litigation of whether the facts were proven or not. And so the Immigration Division agreed uh, with Member King's analysis, saying that it, it can only be... Um, 
engaged in, in cases where there's a national security element. And then the Immigration Appeal Division reversed that decision. The federal court found, agreed with the Immigration Division, the Federal Court of Appeal reversed the federal court's decision, and then we got to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, I want to just pause um, and maybe you can highlight kind of for listeners who aren't as familiar with the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. So Mr. Mason, he's charged with an offense. If he's convicted of that offense, what are the immigration implications? So this offense, because they're serious, they have a 10-year maximum penalty and likely would carry an actual term of imprisonment of six months or more. So he would be inadmissible given a deportation order. Yeah, so that would be the, the normal, you know, kind of process. They would be convicted uh, beyond a reasonable doubt as the standard. And presumably, if he had been convicted, uh, CBSA would have just pursued him under the criminality provisions. Serious criminality. Serious criminality provisions. But because he's not, they take this novel approach of arguing that the security provisions apply. And so how do the security provisions work in terms of what needs to be proven? And it gets into the arguments of the Supreme Court a bit, but what is the, uh, what are the, what's the process under national security or just security considerations for having someone removed? And that's a good point um, because the, the, the standard of proof is very low. So it's a reasonable grounds to believe standard, which is more than a suspicion, but below a balance of probabilities. So it just needs to be some credible evidence, which is often a, a police report. So an allegation alone based on something that was said to a police officer, which is some evidence um, that that can be sufficient to find someone inadmissible if, if the facts are made out, um, they, they can be inadmissible on the, the inadmissibility ground uh, for security reasons. And then there's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would, the, the thing that's like in this serious criminality context, the nuance here is that if the offense was committed in Canada, there needs to be an actual conviction. It can't be just based on, so like some of the criminality provisions allow for a criminality finding just for committing the offense, um, but that's only for offenses committed outside of the country where it's a, an offense committed inside Canada, there needs to be an actual conviction. That's one of the most important distinctions here in this case that that is not the case when you're dealing with the security one. But I think that it would be helpful for those listeners who um, aren't clear with this to like at a very, like very um, succinctly to describe what the process is for somebody being served with that allegation and what their opportunity is to respond. Um, I wonder if one of you could just like race us through what that process is. Um, Connie, I would love to hear uh, that. Yeah, it's, there's, there's not much mystery to it. If you're a permanent resident, CBSA has taken the position that you get a chance. They, they tell you in writing that, that they believe you might be inadmissible. 
or if you're making if you've got a pending application at a visa office ircc will write you with a procedural fairness letter saying we think you might be inadmissible under such and such provision and you have an opportunity to respond in writing how exactly the information uh comes to the attention of cbsa uh is a bit unclear because it's covered by confidential information sharing regimes between cbsa and their partners, CSIS, the RCMP, other local police divisions, whoever it might be. Um, so they get told by somebody that an individual might have done something offside of the security and admissibility provisions. Um, and normally you get a letter saying either we're definitely referring you to the immigration division um, or we're considering referring you to the immigration division and we'll give you an opportunity to respond that um, the the mechanism that they use to to flag that is to say that they've prepared a report under section 44.1 um, and the referral to the immigration division is under section 44.2 of the IRPA. Um, the procedural fairness of that process is pretty contentious and is uh, being actively litigated in another case that um, Molly is trying to take to the Supreme Court. Mm. Um, and that'll be interesting. Um, <laughs> definitely. It's about yeah. whether the best interests of children need to be considered uh, when somebody is H&C barred, as um, you guys raised earlier today, uh, the H&C uh -huh. bars have become uh, kind of sprawling and, and complicated. Um, but not to get too into the weeds again because you asked for a succinct yeah uh, well just because i i said that because i know we could do an entire episode on this question because um anyways carry on um but effectively you get a chance to try to convince cbsa to not refer you if you're a permanent resident if you're a temporary resident um cbsa just kicks you straight to the immigration division and you fight it out there as to whether the factual circumstances meet that the minister is able to put forward in evidence, um, meet the reasonable grounds to believe test um, under the law. And I mean, does anybody think that that's a meaningful opportunity or um, is it a bit of a, like, I, I'm just asking you. The federal court says that it's a procedural screening opportunity, um, whatever that means, why they bother if there's no duty to consider any particular factors, um, the, the jurisprudence effectively just says that if you decide to consider something like the best interests of somebody's children or the length of time that somebody's been in Canada, they have to do so reasonably. Um, so no, it's not a meaningful opportunity at all. Um, but they would contend that it's not so dissimilar from a charge screening process that uh, a provincial crown might undertake or a federal crown might undertake. Um, there are opportunities, certainly some criminal defense counsel have a practice of writing to crown as soon as they know that charges are being considered or even writing to police in, in jurisdictions that don't have charge approval and trying to advocate for why a client shouldn't be charged for whatever reason, maybe they're, you know, upstanding member of society or, or whatever the case might be um 
but there's no duty on the crown to other than than avoiding things like malicious prosecution um or cases where there isn't actually enough evidence to to bring charges um there's no duty to to listen to what counsel has to say at that stage and because the act just says anytime somebody they, there's reasonable grounds to believe somebody is inadmissible they may refer they don't really have to do very much with that screening process and they sort of see I think that that CBSA sees it as a as kind of a favor to people. But in cases where there are appeal rights to the IAD, I've never seen them not refer. I think they see that the IAD has humanitarian jurisdiction and, and any consideration of those factors should wait until after somebody's been found inadmissible. Mm -hmm. yeah. the but they wouldn't have the agency discretion for 34, like in Mason's case. Yeah, exactly. So in those cases, we're pushing for in, in a number of different cases, more meat at that referral stage, mm -hmm. um, speaking of strategic litigation. Um, but that, that's one area where I think that there should be greater consideration of um, the implications of the decision to refer. Yeah. yeah. Um, because uh, it's the only place where things like the person's establishment in Canada can be taken into account or uh, anything other than risk really direct risk under section 97 is going to be looked at in cases of these more severe inadmissibilities mm -hmm. yeah. so, like you I will mean... sometimes see sorry steve go ahead oh no go for it I, i'm just saying that like you will sometimes see that there is already a referral for serious criminality but one where there would be a right of appeal and then there's the addition of a second report for one that would deprive them of the right of appeal. And so um, in those circumstances, um, you know, I'm just, I'm seeing that now. I don't know if you folks have been seeing that for a long time, but um, I've started seeing that more recently. There's definitely a piling on. We've also seen, I think in some cases, section 37 allegations raised against people who are seen to be party to crimes, but are never charged. Mm -hmm. um, what people are probably used to being referred to as unindicted co-conspirators yes. um, with the provenance of the American language, um, but who are just, there might be some party liability, but Crown has declined to press charges. CBSA has decided that that's enough for 37. Yeah. And I think trying to narrow the scope of 37 is another big project of the yeah. firm. Yeah. yeah, I think I want to put section 37 aside for a bit because it is a whole other topic. And it will actually like once we get into Mason and what the Supreme Court ruled, um, section 37, which is the organized crime provisions may make more sense for listeners. Um, I mean, Erica and Molly were describing this case sort of as, you know, a nuanced legal issue or a discrete legal issue. To me, it's probably the most impactful Supreme Court decision involving immigration in at least recent memory, because it's something that, and you can say if this is an unfair characterization of what the government was trying to do, but basically for all permanent residents in Canada and all foreign nationals, if the state had reason to believe that someone had committed or may commit violence, they could skip the criminal justice system and move straight to deportation. Is that a fair way of characterizing what the government was seeking? I, I'd say so. And, and I think it's part of a bigger theme of what you see happening with these inadmissibility provisions, where maybe, you know, it made sense for the, the hearings officer 
to, to consider this offense in Mr. Mason's case to be very serious. Um, but the moment they got, you know, that this this broader interpretation, they immediately seized to use it in as many, you know, in in a, a case of domestic violence where charges, there had been no conviction, even though, and there was multiple allegations, but it, it shows that the moment that they they are able to kind of open a provision up or have it to use in a certain way, that they, they start to do so. And I've seen this in a number of cases. And so you say, let's come back to 37, but it, it can be problematic in the same way where mm-hmm. if you look at the statistics of the re- the referrals um, and these cases before the immigration division, they, they have gone way up. The, the graph line is is shooting sky high. And, and that's because, you know, for, for the same reason where they're able to skip the criminal justice system or they don't get the result um, where they could make someone criminally inadmissible, where you then have the humanitarian considerations. Um, and yeah, so in this case, it was possible that for anybody with with uh, an act of violence that's been alleged, so where there's been a conditional discharge, which means the criminal courts found that it's not contrary to the public interest that this person doesn't get a conviction, possibly where there's a peace bond, so there's actually no no finding that they've actually committed this act. It could be where they're acquitted, but there was some evidence that pointed mm-hmm. to the fact that they were uh, you know, committed this act of violence or are not criminally responsible by way of a mental disorder or a youth who otherwise is also carved out of Section 37. Mm-hmm. So it, this this case was really demonstrative of how the definitions that are adopted can really matter, not just based on the four corners of the person that's before the immigration division, but who will become be brought before the immigration division if the definition is adopted that the minister is arguing for. Because they, I, I do see it that they they will then use it to the four corners that are given to them and, and try did, to expand it. Did yeah. the Department of Justice at the Supreme Court or at any stage say what limiting principles there would be with regards to what constitutes violence? So, for example, over the weekend, there were videos uh, you know, across the world almost, but some in Canada, of protesters for different causes getting into scuffles with police. Um would that, and you'd see people online being like, well, I'll deport anyone who's not Canadian. If Mason had gone the other way, is that, you know, like, were, are there any limiting principles that the government raised at any point during the litigation as to what what violence encompasses or what 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 the limiting principles are? That was a big point of contention during oral arguments with the court where Justice Brown at the time was was in a a significant back and forth with the Department of Justice lawyers saying, show me the definition. And and they were, I mean, they couldn't really do anything more. They they could only point to the definition that had been stated by the Immigration Division and the Immigration Appeal Division, because that's the decision they're, they're saying deserves deference. And those decisions had no limiting aspects to them. They just said engaging in acts of violence were, were, were relying on the four corners of, of, what is stated in the wording of the provision. And um, so our argument continued to be, that's incredibly broad. And I I don't think the Department of Justice was able to point to limiting language to it. So sorry, what are those four corners again? Engaging in acts of violence that would or might 
endanger the lives or safety of a person in Canada. And so it, the word might is something that was incredibly significant to me. Any act of violence might endanger someone. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And so how did the Supreme Court, I mean, people can probably read into the questions. The Supreme Court agreed with you. Um, what, what Were there aspects of the decision? Um, well, I mean, and we can start tying it into A37. Where, what aspects of the decision like kind of most stuck with you or pleased you with regards to trying to prevent sort of this inadmissibility overreach to use Molly's words? I mean, I think one of the one of the really helpful aspects of the decision is its engagement with the refugee convention and the criteria at the refugee convention, uh, the criteria that are in the refugee convention that have to inform the the reading of provisions like this one. Um, the refugee convention has built in built in what would you call them, sort of limits on refugee protection in very specific cases and very highly delineated cases and. And there's been significant overreach in, in the admissibility provisions, including in the, in the underlying decision in Mason. And Justice Jamal of the Supreme Court made clear that the convention needs to be a very strong um, factor uh, in, in terms of an exercise of statutory interpretation, for example, in this provision and in other, other similar provisions. Um, I thought that was one of the most useful parts of the decision. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> To go back to Steve's last point, from an administrative law side, the Federal Court of Appeal tried to sort of smuggle in a limiting factor because I think Justice Stratus, who wrote that decision, saw the problem with there being no limit. And he says that um, the Immigration Appeal Division, though they don't say it, could only mean that they interpreted safety as something approaching the level of a threat to life, not just minor harm. 
that's not in the decision anywhere. That's some kind of necessary implication that he's trying to draw out from the reasons of the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vavilov says that that's improper. And thankfully, this decision hammers home that you're not supposed to do it. You're not supposed to put more dots on the page. You're just supposed to the, the court can connect some dots, but they're not supposed to add them. And this was seen as Stratus kind of. Yeah, I mean that reinforcing like, the original reasoning. Yeah, that that's where Mason probably goes even beyond the inadmissibility topics. Was I think they they go back to what they call a reasons first approach. Yeah, um, where we can't just. I mean, the court would normally call it buttressing, so the federal court of appeal can't try to buttress or read into decisions what's not there. I really agree with you, Connie, and I think that the. Uh, one of the things that I was very excited to see, because I have been waiting since Vavilov to see the court making kind of like a directed verdict kind of a decision. And this is the first time I've seen it. And I hadn't understood exactly what they had intended in Vavilov, saying that there were certain situations in which there was only one reasonable outcome. And here they were like, here, there's only one reasonable outcome. There's no, there's no need to send this back to the original tribunal. What we're saying here is that was an unreasonable interpretation. We are just going to quash the decision that was made uh, by the, uh, by the, the lower court. And that this is what the proper interpretation was. That allegation does not stand and carry on. Um, I would love to see more of that. And I would love to see that that will empower other courts to say, no, we're not going to send you back to the original tribunal to argue this out again. This is the reasonable interpretation and, uh, you know, go forward. And I found that to be one of the most significant parts of this decision, because with before the Federal Court of Appeal, we were arguing that there are these you've got, you have to do an exercise of statutory interpretation and interpreting a provision. And we said there are so many indicators here that show Parliament intended this to be interpreted in a certain way. And the Federal Court of Appeal was like, no, you're asking for a correctness review. And so in reply, we were saying, well, no, in in B10, in Kantasami, in Tran, the court has looked at these provisions. And in essence, I, I was arguing they had found because of all the interpretive elements, there was only one reason reasonable interpretation. And that was the only fair interpretation you can give to what the Supreme Court was doing. But the Federal Court of Appeal said in their reasons, no, the court is saying, you know, do as we say, not as we do. So to me, Mason was also a very helpful interpretation of what had been done in the earlier jurisprudence that can now be put before the Federal Court of Appeal to say expressly, these are cases where there's one reasonable interpretation and you have to do a, a fulsome statutory interpretation exercise in order for the decision to be reasonable. Uh, and that's not a correctness review. Okay. And the, the other thing that I found that was really helpful in Mason is they they cared about the consequence to the person. So this is something that, 
you know, because the Immigration Division, the Immigration Appeal Division, and the federal courts see these harsh consequences a lot more often, it feels like sometimes they're a little bit diluted in how they're considered in, in the exercise of what's happening. But the Supreme Court sees all sorts of cases. And so across the board, they can see that these consequences are so much more significant than a lot of other consequences that happen in different areas. And so here they are reminding everyone that these consequences are significant. Mm. And Vavilov says that those consequences matter in terms of the reasons that are required to justify a decision. And to me, that is an indication that the reasons in immigration and refugee decisions need to be elevated across the board um, to to meet the standard of justification and transparency. Yeah, we're not just seeing the whole like, well, you have the ability to make a to make an application for ministerial relief, you're all good, you know? Uh, So I think that there was a a consideration of the real life lack of availability of that. And so uh, that's refreshing to see. I thought that they had kind of misunderstood your argument about that this, that you're looking for correctness um, as the standard of, review. But I think that actually when they came around and said, no, 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 this is reasonableness review, but ultimately there can still be the final conclusion reached that there is only one proper interpretation. And it is that this is the incorrect interpretation and therefore, but that doesn't make it correctness review. It still is a reasonableness review that went wrong. Well, and that part's interesting because we did, it was about two to three paragraphs in our memo where we said, well, you can't get what you don't ask for. And so Paul Daly is, you know, the esper, expert yes, on the standard of law. review. And yeah. um, so we had a lot of discussions with him, but we, we did, we, we asked kind of as an aside for, you know, maybe this, this, you should just call this a correctness review. Mm-hmm. And so we, we kind of realized though that they, they, they likely weren't going to want to depart from Vavilov. So our argument was really centered on the fact that this is a one reasonable interpretation case. Yes. But then, so I, I was a little bit surprised to see it, how in-depth the analysis was back and forth over the correctness issue, yeah. but rightfully so. I think it's, it's an important one. And I see Molly might have. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think it'll be interesting to see how this gets applied going forward. I think, you know, we were happy with the outcome, but, but, you know, already you saw Justice Cote expressing discomfort with that analysis and expressing discomfort with this tension between correctness review and one reasonable interpretation. Um, The federal court of appeal has repeatedly expressed discomfort with that tension. And I think already we've seen, there's been a decision out of the federal court of appeal expressing some reluctance to, to apply Mason wholeheartedly, not on that point, but on a related point. So is this going to be a sea change in terms of what reasonableness review looks like? And in particular, in particular, in the immigration context, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's definitely worth arguing carefully. And, and I hope that it makes for some really sort of clear decision-making in this area, which we need, right? We, we all need that you get really divergent decision-making at the federal court and it's such a headache to navigate. Um, Not just that, but the idea, I mean, and this is the words that were used in Vavilov, this merry-go-round of litigation, like it's just, it, it is an access to justice issue. Litigants, public interest litigants simply cannot afford 
to win at a higher court and then go back and relitigate. Like it's punitive, especially when it's involving issues that are about admissibility, are about removal, like the stress that they need to live under for so many years at such a cost, like it's just, it's not a thing. And so the idea of having a definitive answer and to set the issue straight definitively is what needs to start happening. Um, you know, so I, I love it, obviously, but I'm not, I'm not the judge. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, uh, what's, when you take a case to the Supreme Court like this, do you ever get a sense of kind of what's going on at the political level at the other side? Because like, in theory, since this was a case about interpretation, the Trudeau government could always just pass a bill which says that the criminal justice provisions don't need to apply to people who we think have committed violence. Unlikely that they would ever do that, yet their lawyers are arguing for a result that would achieve that, you know, that same effect. And so I've often wondered like where there is a possible disconnect between what a government would actually propose to pass in a legislation and what they will argue an existing provision should be interpreted. At the Supreme Court level, do you ever like get wind of what the political mood at the government is or what's going on kind of at that sense? That's a really interesting question. And other than saying that I've had that thought as well, I don't think I have much insight into how that works. And I think it becomes really hard for them when the decisions are made on things like not deporting people to persecution as a consequence, you know, long-term harsh consequences of separating them from family. And so the decisions that end up coming out of the Supreme Court end up being these kind of principled and balanced decisions. I think it would be hard for the government to to turn around and say, no, we did intend to violate the Refugee Convention. We're derogating and we're deporting people to persecution. So I, I think it's kind of by just arguing these in court and trying to win um, on legal arguments, it, it, I think it's a lot softer. Um, had were had any politicians commented on the case when it was going before the Supreme Court? Not that I know of. What I what I do remember was in B ten with respect to the human smuggling provisions, there was a lot of comments from the Harper government at the time about the fact that everyone aboard the MV Sansi was terrorists and and human smugglers and. There, there was a lot of comment around wanting to deport the people who were, um, they were arguing were inadmissible for human smuggling or should be convicted of, of those things. And um, so there, there was a lot of political discourse there. And at the time when when we, we won those cases, though, and they found that um, it was similar, though. Canada had made these commitments under international law to say that, um, you know, well, if we're deporting human smugglers, that, that that shouldn't also be family members helping each other and humanitarians like churches helping refugees. And so I think the, the cases going forward create this really interesting kind of discourse, but it's all indirect where um, you're kind of trying to weigh these different principles and commitments we've made. Uh, yeah. But it was interesting because there was a lot of comments politically at that time. And so let's come back or let's come back around to 837. So Mason establishes that, um, you know, the, the government can't deport someone for, say, domestic violence without a conviction in Canada under 
security provisions, what's the tension that remains with uh, organized crime and admissibility provisions? I would say the biggest tension at this point, or the one that they get people on the most often, is what separates an organized criminal group from a criminal conspiracy. Um, the organized, the language of the provision suggests that a single crime, as long as it's part of a pattern of criminal behavior or on behalf of a criminal organization, is enough. Um, and of course, you, you also don't need a conviction there. Under 37, you can be party to an offense and are not charged. The prosecution, again, could fall apart, but they could decide that the fact that they prosecuted you either under organized criminality or even just under conspiracy would be sufficient to deport you under 37, organized criminal inadmissibility. Um, but some pretty favorable commentary out of the Supreme Court in a recent jury instruction case, um, and the name is escaping, escaping me, um, but it was about a group of um, Somali men in, in Toronto. Um, this was an immigration decision or a criminal no, it was a, a, a criminal law decision about how an organized criminal group had to be described to a jury and the importance of not stereotyping and making clear what is being what needs to be shown to constitute an organized criminal group and a reaffirmation of this 2012 decision Veneri about the level of um continuity and organization that needs to exist for something to be an organized criminal group. And with a federal court of appeal decision affirming that the, yeah, Abdullahi, of course. <laughs> Thanks, Erica. <laughs> um, but the um, federal court of appeal has said that the criminal code definition and the immigration definition have to be read harmoniously. So all of this criminal law jurisprudence applies in the immigration context when we're talking about organized criminality. And the distinction there, what they're willing to charge as organized criminality in the criminal law context is so, so much narrower than what they do in the immigration context. We've seen a number of clients who are effectively party to a conspiracy, whether it's to defraud or to traffic narcotics or whatever the case might be. Um, sorry, I think there's some police sirens that are probably being caught up mm. <laughs> on the audio. Uh, but there's, I think, an overcharging problem at CBSA and that they're gunning for people that they should not be and that they're laying 37 charges when they or allegations when they should be going after 361A or 361C for conduct committed outside of Canada. Um, there is just this enormous amount of conduct that is being, I think, improperly described as organized criminality when it's really just people acting in concert to commit criminal offenses without yeah. a real organization present there at all. So I've of... had a, I had a, just to give, to give one concrete example, we had a spouse of somebody who, yes, the, the, the husband was engaged in fraud and he was convicted 
and she shared bank accounts with him. So, and, and she was also a victim of domestic violence. And yet they brought a section 37 allegation against her that she was also engaged in, in the acts because she must have either known or been willfully blind about what was happening because they shared bank accounts. And we ended up, we went before the immigration division and, and they dismissed that, that application. But to even bring it in the first place, and there was no way at the outset when they were seeking to make the referral and seeking submissions on whether they should make the referral, that we could have convinced them otherwise, because they see this as something that, oh, it might fall within the four corners of the provision. And so, and this is not an isolated example. We see a lot of cases like this where we win the most egregious ones, but then there's a whole bunch of other ones where it's, it's a low level involvement in some sort of fraud that is not a national security issue. That means somebody should be deported to persecution if they're a refugee. And so it, it's, being used in just an incredibly broad way. And yeah, I did a ATIP request for every decision. I can't remember which year on organized crime out of the IRB in Vancouver. And I was surprised at how many were shoplifting. Um, like three or more people. Uh, yeah, just stealing. And like crimes of poverty, for the most part, you know, or crimes motivated by mental health issues or drug addiction, and just honestly, people that can't afford to mount a sophisticated defense uh, at the immigration division, but but to a large extent, people who have been, I mean, a lot of the cases that I'm seeing are people that have been here for a large proportion of their lives. Many grew up in Canada, have children in Canada, like it's, um, they're very, very challenging, very tragic cases, and uh, um, not not hardened criminals, you know. Um, but anyways, it's it's all kind of grouped under this like public safety mandate. Um, and so, but it's just the part for me about um, the purpose of depriving people of appeal rights. To me, this is why this is kind of how I framed it from the beginning. This is how it always shows up for me. I just can't, understand as a broad policy mandate the benefit of depriving people of appeal rights um it says it right in the title of the act faster removal of foreign <laughs> yeah. criminals yeah bad no, guys i know, I know. <laughs> we're I know. going after bad boys and we want them out of the country as fast as possible for whatever reason like it's yeah. just punitive I just don't know when somebody ceases to be foreign, you know, and it's just like, again, it just all of this, when we talk about doing public interest litigation like this, I think when we talk about like the stuff that kind of like evokes this, like, get me out of bed, help me like feel motivated to argue a case. It's there's so much about the title of this bill that then became law that it just um, it shocks the conscience. And when they talk about like these things like shock the conscience of the Canadian public, you know, it's like, that's not the stuff that shocks my conscience. Am I a different faction of the Canadian public? And, you know, I think that um, oftentimes when you see these debates going on in in the courts and in the Supreme Court of Canada, it's like, yeah, but they committed crimes, you know, it's sort of like, when you when you actually are interacting with the people whose cases you are arguing, like the human side of these stories, I feel like 
there's a lot of good guy, bad guy stuff going on in the general um, public sphere right now. And I think um, working on these kinds of cases shows the, the larger humanity story and just the very short shift we're going, we're giving to like actual humans in very difficult circumstances and the, the big labeling that we're doing and the inappropriateness of it in so many circumstances. I think that that actually really is a great point um, in that, you know, in all of our and uh, all how all of the inadmissibility provisions are interpreted, they were all drafted, well, except for recent some recent amendments, but they all took like the original concepts were drafted when the, as you showed at the start, humanitarian and compassionate considerations could apply to anyone. And really, there's a lot of the frustrations that, you know, we all have is because there is no humanitarian and compassionate consideration available for these types of inadmissibilities anymore. And everything kind of stems from that, it seems. Yeah, why? Yeah, and I do think one thing one thing about this case is that it was statutory interpretation. We didn't have to litigate it on some sort of fuzzy H and I mean, I, I much appreciate HNCs, but you know, we've we've had a we as immigration lawyers know how hard it's been to litigate totally all these barriers to the relief valves. And this case was not about um, some very subjective determination of whether Mr. Mason, you know, is is a good person and, and who his family is and how long he's been in Canada. This was a pure case of statutory interpretation. And I think it's interesting to see that that's a case in which the Supreme Court made a pretty strong statement about the principles underlying that exercise oh, right. of statutory interpretation. What is really worrying is that, you know, for people who are found inadmissible, they don't have access to these to these relief valves, right? So, so there is no, and the decision has nothing to do with that, and provides no assistance in that regard for the most part. I still think, and I've I've said it before in, in this conversation, I won't necessarily get into it too deeply, but I do think the international law piece creates some room for an argument in that regard, as as it pertains to convention refugees. But we still have the problem of for those folks who are caught by the inadmissibility provisions. Um, what are the relief valves that are available for them? And it's, you know, this is something as Connie alluded to earlier with the litigation we've been doing around the referral process. Um, I think there are real questions to be raised as to the international law implications and the charter implications of depriving certain individuals of all uh, agency relief at the IID stage, at the referral stage, at the, at the, at the uh, agency stage. Yeah, and I'm kind of clenching like, going back to a comment that Steve made earlier, like in terms of the political environment is that I feel like we are ripe for a new act. And, you know, um, in light of some of this more progressive jurisprudence, I wonder what the government is going to do when they when they introduce a new piece of legislation. And I feel like the most recent statements from the minister about immigration reform and having a whole scale look at the immigration scheme, I feel like it anticipates a new act. And that kind of leaves me feeling very insecure about what they're going to do to close these gaps. I don't know if anybody else is a final word has a has the same fear for I'm just being a, feeling a little paranoid in the in the wake of um, the the events that are kind of 
uh, taking taking the world by storm. But um, anyways, uh, I don't think they've done. I don't think the liberals have done an immigration specific bill since 2015. They did their citizenship bill. Yeah, like one of their first bills, I think their sixth bill was a citizenship bill. Um, The Senate introduced that like sanctions is an admissibility, but that was through the the Senate. I don't think the liberals have done an immigration bill. It's really creepy because they've made a billion changes, but all like stuffed into some, you know, the 100th provision of a budget bill. But uh, yeah, I think they prefer to do that in ministerial um, statements. Instructions, even though they complain. Yeah, even though they complain like hell about the erosion of rule of law when the conservatives introduced the ministerial instruction power they're using it like um like crazy yeah i was gonna say i think you're far more optimistic than i am about the liberals ability to actually legislate um Mm. they've tabled legislation she's worried they're gonna close it all (laughs) exactly no but connie's saying that their ineptitude is going to be you know the positive side i don't think it's ineptitude i think it's a bit of political cowardice or or just apprehension they are far more willing to do these little piecemeal programs so ukrainians you get a special program afghans get a little bit of special treatment for a minute and then we'll take it away as soon as ukraine starts yeah um or the construction out of status construction workers in the greater toronto area get a special program and you get a special program and again all free ministerial instruction no no legislative change no scheme i remember steve when i used to work with you talking about how so much of the liberal or um, immigration policy was being done through stealth edits to the ircc website like Mm -hmm. there's just changes made with no announcement this is actually Um, pretty historical though like if you look back before irpa before the immigration act i think of 1985 historically immigration has been a very kind of um thing that's just done politically through prerogative writs is that the right term but yeah. um, you know it, it is a very kind of political area and bef- before these acts it, it there was just a lot of discretion where decisions mm-hmm. were made based on um you know what the minister well, wanted to do at the time in our last podcast we had simon wallace on who is diana alluded to this who was talking about deportation and he was saying imagine if in the 19 early 1900s canada had just decided that deportation's royal prerogative and that there don't need to be laws or procedural safeguards and went a completely different way how different everything would be anyways i'm looking at the contact we've got i don't know if anyone has any final closing thoughts optimistic i know deanna sounds pessimistic at least about (laughs) political will to change things I think one thing I wanted to add that just related to what you were talking about not around a legal change but you know part of part of the reason the case law has been so hard and the law has been so hard in this area is because of that statement that immigration is a privilege, not a right. And we thought about directly attacking that line in in Mason, but we were indirectly attacking it. And I do think that these recent decisions we've seen out of the Supreme Court are pushing back on that, where they're saying, you know, this... there are things about immigration and deportation that matter. And they said that directly in Wong, where they said immigration is a 
more significant consequence for many people or deportation than than a criminal conviction and a jail sentence. So I, I think that's been kind of one of the great successes of the, the recent jurisprudence of the Supreme Court that people can continue to argue in future oh, cases yeah. that, that that thread has been undermined um, because this kind of stuff does matter. I love that, Erica. I think that that's a really, really important point that like, um, just the the very notion that procedural protection should be lower because this is not a criminal consequence. I love the idea of shaking that as an underlying principle. Yeah. This has been super, super interesting. Um, yeah, we need to have all of you back in different capacities over the next little while. Um, don't hesitate to let us know about things that are coming up. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist-approved, so fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 